You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. That was important because I think in, a, in its own way, it, it kind of set the path for me to do the kind of work that was always in service of not just taking things at face value and being really critical and being really, I think, to constantly question who is this good for and who is it not. When I came upon any type of information, never to take it just at face value. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Power of Why. My name is Naomi Haile, and today I am here with the incredible Sharon Nyangueso. Sharon, how are you doing today? I'm well, although in this moment I just realized I've been saying your last name incorrectly for the bulk of my life, and now I want to bury myself in a hole. <laughs> Glad to hear you say it. <laughs> I realize I've never heard you say your name out loud. This is a problem. Okay. Good, good start, good start. <laughs> that is the funniest thing ever. <laughs> and most people say hail. Yes. But Hyla. Yes. Did I get your last name? Hyla. Okay. I think so. I, I probably just like stopped hearing anything as soon as I said you said your last name and I was like, oh no. <laughs> so <laughs> probably, probably said it right. Probably said it right. But I'm doing good. I am warm and happy because that is where I am happiest when it is warm. So I have no complaints. Well, I am so excited to have you here. I've been thinking about like, how do I ask Sharon to come on? Like, is my podcast worthy enough? And then (laughs) at one point um, we were talking and I'm just like, this needs to happen. You are an incredible leader. You (laughs) are the most intelligent person that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So for the audience, Sharon Yanguesso is the brilliant founder and CEO of Quake Lab, which is a full stack inclusion and communications agency based here in Ottawa, but she works with organizations in many different industries across the country, from nonprofit to health research to provincial working with provincial governments. And Sharon specializes in a radical new approach to diversity and inclusion that is measurable strategic and based on a strong foundation of design thinking. Sharon is a leader when it comes to empathetic community engagement and moving inclusivity from aspiration to action. We, we love it here. And it's no surprise that she's also called on <laughs> to speak and share her expertise with the world. She's a regular contributor and panelist on CBC radio and television, Ravel.ca, Live 88.5 and CTV. And because of one of her tweets that just went viral, yo, everyone <laughs> is reaching out to her. <laughs> um, so this past year, it's been incredible to have met you and to be able to work with you. So I'm so blessed that we are recording this conversation today. Thank you. <laughs> it's always so weird hearing like someone spew off these things. Grateful, but also I, I hope I, I hope I live up to your high expectations. You're the best. So if you can get us started, if you can get us started by sharing a little bit about your origin story, kind of how you grew up, do you have siblings, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think my my story has been both incredibly like normal and uneventful, but also wildly just off the rails at the same time. (laughs) So um, I was born in Kenya. And when I was very young, probably around seven or eight, my mother, who actually was from a, a really, she was in a complicated family situation when she was born. She was born into a complicated family situation. And she she was denied a lot of higher education. Um, so she ended up going to secretary school. This is in the, I guess, 80s. And 
from there, she managed to finesse her way into foreign affairs in Kenya and then further finesse her way into an international posting here in Canada as the secretary mm-hmm. to the ambassador, which I like to me is always so impressive. That I don't think I really understood the gravity of that when I was young in mm-hmm. that, you know, when you if you go into into any kind of embassy foreign affairs circle now Canadian or otherwise there's a lot of elitism in those circles this idea of like this is the who's who's these are ambassadors these are diplomats and then you have my mom who just really just you know snuck her way through every single door that was not even open but just like a jar snuck her way (laughs) through it and so we were here for a number of years and so I think for me I I have a pretty I want to say unique immigration story because I have gotten to experience Canada as a small child and then gotten to experience it as an adult with a pretty large gap in the middle. So after we were here for about uh, just under 10 years, must have been around seven or so years, we went back to Kenya and I spent uh, all of high school and a little bit of college in Kenya. And then I came here as an international student in 2010. And what I say, it's like a really unique insight into like Canada in those two lenses is that when we were here as when I was here as children, my, my two siblings and my mom, yeah, I had a very rose-colored view of the country, mm-hmm. right? Because not only am I a child living in, like, suburbia, you know, like, and, and also coming from 90s Kenya, right? I'm a child in suburbia, and because of, you know, having diplomatic status, you know, we had certain luxuries afforded to us. That was in my mind, that sort of solidified in my mind, I, I guess, because I was a child, like, like we weren't living like that because of the the reasons we were in this country being diplomacy. But in my mind as a child, we were living like that because that was just how Canada was. Um, and so coming back as an international student from a family that had economic challenges throughout my, my childhood, and also coming into those rose-colored glasses around this country was in terms of race, in terms of class, in terms of opportunity, and then showing up with not a ton of money, um, no networks, very little opportunity. And because it really took moving mountains for my mom to get me here as an international student and meant that um, financially it was always strained. So all I did was work um, a lot, probably if, you know, on the lowdown more than I was supposed to. Um, And because I had this understanding, well, two things just are that are culturally relevant to me is that because of where I'm from, education is thought of as your only real pathway to success. Like, I remember being really, really young. This is when we were first here, probably in like the third or fourth grade. And my dad was visiting us. And I think like, I must have got like a C or a B in something. And I remember him so clearly saying, these other children you're with, they have welfare in this country. You know what you have? You will be someone's maid if you fail. <laughs> and in hindsight, I have unpacked this as my therapist. <laughs> that is wholly inappropriate to say to a child. <laughs> but also like, also like low-key real in that like, uh, like, you know, we didn't have the same cushioning to fall back on. Like when you fall back, you fall back all the way. And so when I came here and just understanding what was in my mind and still truly still a child because I was 18 I was on my own when I came here understanding the gravity of what was being sacrificed both from my mom and also for myself to be here 
really for the four years I was in school, I did not, I was not part of clubs. I was not part of communities. I did not build networks. I was in school and working. That's all I did for four years. I was incredibly stressed out, super depressed. There were months when I lived on nothing but like very cheap white wine and Oreos. I don't know why (laughs) Oreos were were available at the quickie 24 seven. So it just made sense. Um, And so I think coming and in between that, I was actually deregistered from school. So as an international student, if you don't pay your full year tuition, I think by October, you're just deregistered, like right off there, like you're done for the semester. So I was deregistered, which also was incredibly tumultuous because that affects your immigration status as well, whether or not you're in school. So Mm -hmm. it was a year of me living precariously because of my immigration status. It was a year of me living precariously because of financial state. Like it was just a very difficult year. But at the same time, in terms of knowledge building, learning, education, it was probably one of the best years in my life. I, mm. I really appreciate the education I got in general, but I think that was the time in which I was really able to foster this love of learning that was on my terms. I wasn't being examined. I wasn't having to do assignments that were more being crafted because I knew this is what my professor liked to see in a paper, but really just like learning for the sake of learning. And this is where I think if if we're talking about radicalization, this is probably the year that really radicalized me. Um, And interestingly, it was, I think, one specific thing. It was around the time that um, the story of Luca Magnata came out. He is a serial killer from Montreal. And um, I remember I had been applying for a visa. I can't, I think it was like to London or something. I was applying for a visa and my visa got denied because they said I was sort of like high risk in terms of someone to come into the country. And that was the exact same time. So with the, the UK was still part of the EU at that time. So the visa you get is called the Schengen visa and that covers all of Europe. And literally simultaneously, Luca McDonough, who just literally killed a man on video, dismembered him, done the worst things, just like walked into, <laughs> walked into Europe. I remember that time. Yeah. And in my mind, I don't know why. I remember thinking, like making this really clear line between, okay, this person who is by all accounts, a terrible human being by luck, purely by luck, was born in this geographical area that was affected by colonialism. And the same people that colonize the place where he gets to just have this lucky passport are, is the same empire that also colonized my country and made it so that they need to be concerned about people like me entering their and I was like I was making this connection and that was like I'd say like it was my baby activist moment where I was like this is injustice this is unfair and I think that was important because I think in in its own way it it kind of set the path for me to do the kind of work that was always in service of not just taking things at face value and being really critical and being really, I think, to constantly question who is this good for and who is it not when I came upon any type of information, never to take it just at face value. Mm. So thanks, Luke and McNaught. Please, no, take that back. I'm not, I'm not going to be caught on, <laughs> on recordings thanking a serial killer. This is not how I go down. Yeah. Oh gosh, there's so much more. There's so much more that hasn't been covered there. But yeah, I went into the workforce. I had, I still was a baby who was very optimistic about what the nonprofit sector looks for. Because for a lot of us, especially for myself, because of where I was raised in Kenya, like nonprofit, charity, international development are a big part of what you see. 
on one hand, yes, in terms of doing good in quotes, but also on another hand, growing up in Kenya, those were the people that were some of the most well-off, right? Okay. In terms of people who worked in nonprofit sector. So in coming here, I thought, okay, this is two birds, right? I can do good in the world and also I can live well because that has been a driving force for me. It's to have stability in my life, especially financial stability. And so I knew that I wanted to get into the nonprofit sector. I carved a niche for myself early on working um, in digital community building. And that was a time when social media was still something that people weren't really sure if they should invest in. So I came mm -hmm. in talking about digital community building um, and then I built a further niche for myself where the way I approached digital community building was definitely just digital community building, but also in the way of like building specifically with the understanding that different communities and different people groups navigate the digital world and the internet differently. So I'd, for instance, pitch to a nonprofit, whatever that like, you know, a young woman, an 18-year-old woman in Tanzania is using Instagram very differently than an 18-year-old, um, you know, white woman in in Ottawa. And that is partly because, for instance, you know, the Tanzanian young woman might be using Instagram as a storefront before that was even like a big thing. But before Instagram had like shopping features and all that, a lot of young um, people in Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East were using social media as storefronts. So that was part of the work I was doing. And then in doing that work more and more and developing my method for that work, I did a lot of courses and learning around design thinking, specifically um, human-centered design, because that's sort of what I was doing, this idea that like you need to know who you're building for before you right. go into building. And I think not only is that just like good design principle, but to some element, and I don't think I could have articulated this at the time, I think it's a good way of moving away from like this imperialist way of thinking in the nonprofit sector that like by virtue of us just winning the like birth lottery and being born in Canada, like we know, or, and by we, I mean like the nonprofit sector, like we know what's best for these people over there. I, I mean, I tell this to a lot of folks who work in the nonprofit sector, you need to get comfortable with the fact that whatever you think is great, people in the global south have been doing it people have been doing it they don't have sexy names for it they don't have apps for it but they've been doing it they are the experts at their experience they probably know more than you know i mean i remember listening to a pitch years and years ago for an organization that i was consulting with and they were talking about how they sent um university students who didn't necessarily they weren't necessarily working in agriculture but they were university students and they'd send them to rural kenya and rural uganda to like teach women farmers how to innovate. And I was like, these, like, my guy, they haven't, like, grown even, like, a single plant in their lives. And, like, they're teaching, like, what? Uh, and so with knowing that and, like, building that methodology, I also started wondering, like, why in all of the organizations that I would work in, they would always come this time when it was like, okay, let's talk diversity and inclusion. And the same rigor they would put into all of the other work suddenly was like checked at the door for this. Right. The right. same rigor that was put into problem solving, into designing, even into what I was doing was checked mm -hmm. at the door. And all that would happen was they would say like, we're really glad to have people like Sharon in the room. Despite the fact I had one organization where one of the older white directors, <laughs> there was another black woman who worked with me. She was like six, one, maybe I'm like, five seven on a good day like we're we look very different and he would always call me her name all the time <laughs> but like <laughs> but like once it came to like diversity and equity diversity and inclusion it was like yes we're so happy to have these people in the room and you know this is a real problem but there's also in the nonprofit sector there's a 
uh, hesitance and a refusal to do a lot of self-reflection because it's like because we're doing good we are just good mm-hmm. and so at some point I was like you know what this is not good for me I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life I don't like this sector I don't like anything in about it so I'm just gonna go do my own thing <laughs> um, and that's what I did and then here we are five six some seven I don't know some years later good. I mean you've been in Canada for for nine years about that um yeah. <clears throat> oh, I'm no. wondering I'm actually on 11 are you, I'm on 11, are you on 11? okay so yeah. then you need to update your bio Loki <laughs> um, but this is yeah because you came here at 18 incredible your story I think even the way that you kind of guided us around your decision making and maybe the the certain experiences that you know realize themselves seven ten years later in your work mm. specifically is really fascinating. And um, the piece that I was really curious about is around, you know, when you came here as a student, were you in, I'm wondering, you had the whole world to choose from when it came to education. Was, did, did Canada feel almost like a homecoming, like a return? <laughs> was it like, what was your decision making around choosing Canada yeah. as, a, as a place that you wanted to immigrate to? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you the I'll give you the exclusive. You heard it on Power of Why first. In the past, every time people ask me, why Canada? Why did you end up here? I always joked, oh, you know, my, my mom just gave me one ask. She said, just go somewhere where you know at least three people. But that's not really true. <laughs> um, the, the real reason was that, A, like I think the practical aspect of like I felt like I knew Canada, even though my knowledge was a little, you know, skewed. There was the knowledge of Canada, but also I... I can't stress this enough. There was in any normal world, in an alternate universe, like there was no reason why this should have worked. When I made the decision to come to Canada, again, I think at the time when I started, when I actually pitched the idea to my parents, I was 17. And we were going through financially, my family, we've always had ebbs and flows. But this was time, there was a period where it was more ebb than flow. It was like this continuous downturn financially in terms of our our stability in terms of just like our family dynamics like things had not been going well for a really long time and so in hindsight terrible time for you know Sharon to be like hey everyone you know how shit's really hit the fan sorry I don't know if I can say that um let's let's throw in like a million shilling um you know plan for Sharon at this point my siblings had both deferred going to school continuing on their education because we had no money for tuition but here I was being like cool story brah now about Canada (laughs) like it was like off the wall it was like and this is probably my best and worst like personality trait is that it'll take me a minute to make a decision but when I make it I'm doing it now like I'm so impatient I have no I have no cares I'm just like this is what I'm doing this is what I'm doing and we're just gonna have to figure out how to make it work so there was literally there was no reason for this to happen but I think I had been going through a really difficult time emotionally mentally I was it was a really, really rough time. Those that like the last few years of my teenage years, I I don't think I was again in hindsight, like I don't think I was all the way well and I didn't have the resources for it. I remember when I was around sixteen, I started fainting. <laughs> Just like passing out all the time. <laughs> 
I, I, I think I knew in my mind, I, I think I knew it was related to stress and like mental health, yeah. but everyone around was like, what the hell is wrong with this kid? <laughs> Why is she just fainting? And then one time I, I was on a high chair in class and I passed out and usually my fainting is like so fast. Like by the time I hit the ground, I'm already back like conscious. So it's, it's extra embarrassing. <laughs> but um, this one time I was on a high chair, hit like fell and everyone was worried I might've hit my head. So we ended up going to the hospital and the doctors kept me for I think overnight or for two nights and they did all of the tests they checked me and they were like listen physiologically she is fine so they sent this old psychologist this like hospital psychologist he like was like okay we're gonna we're gonna talk to you and we're gonna get a little privacy and he closes the little like curtain thing and he's like Sharon have you been raped Wait, I'm sorry, are those my only options? Yes, yes. I was like, okay, so those are my only options. Either I'm not okay because I have been, like, I have to have been sexually assaulted or dying. And I think that really messed up my understanding of, like, my well-being for a really long time. (laughs) Like, I was like, unless one of these two things are happening... I have no room to like be unwell. <laughs> like I just need to power yeah. through. So I, I wasn't in the best mental health for a number of years. And I think I I needed I needed space to imagine a world for myself that was not so tumultuous, both in terms of like family dynamics, but also tumultuous in that something that I never got used to being in Kenya, for instance, was planning my outfit around where I was going to be that day. You know, like if I was going to be going through downtown to go to school, like my skirt can't be too short, like, you know, like that kind of thing, because I knew there would be, it would just be too hectic. And I never got used to that. So I I just had, again, this really childhood idea of Canada. And I was like, okay, so this is, this is the path that I need to build for myself right now. And I fully built myself a path. And that's how Canada came to be. It wasn't out of like just pure love and joy for the country it wasn't out of like yes like I've always told people my mom just told me to pick a place where I knew three people it was just out of me trying to path a future for myself that felt survivable thank you for that context (laughs) thank you for that context and there there are a couple directions or like things in my head that I, I definitely wanted you to expand on and talk about so because you talked a little bit about life planning um, and just having, you know, the space and opportunity to kind of design your life in the, in the way that you kind of imagined or envisioned for yourself. Maybe we'll start there because I want to give you also the opportunity to talk about your work because I think your approach is so fascinating and, and rigorous, but there's this exercise that you shared with me mm. and Zena Muse at this point a couple of months ago. And I'd love for you to yeah. explain that exercise and then also how it really put you in position to, to do the things that essentially you're doing right now. Yeah, I remember that conversation. We were supposed to be working. And for, instead, we just talked about life for three hours. <laughs> well, like many people, I, in my 20s, I really bought into this idea that you have to know what you want to do. Like you have to know what career you want to have and really build your entire life around or build your entire life goals and planning. Either you're going to do it around these traditional markers of adulthood, like get married, have babies, buy a house or around career. Like this is what I want to be for a job. This is how I want to get there, all of that. Like, and there's no real middle ground for it. And I was struggling because I think the last time I knew what I wanted to do was when I was like nine and my family watched a lot of CSI and I wanted to be specifically a uh what is it called a something pathologist 
which literally is the person on CSI who like looks at the dead bodies and says, this is my, <laughs> this is my like understanding of how this person died. And I found this thing in them and the worms say they died X amount of time ago. And I always used to say to my mom, I want to do that because there's no way I'll lose a patient. <laughs> like it seemed like a good mouthcraft between being a doctor and like people dying. And just like, it's fine because everyone's dead. So you're okay. <laughs> and that's the last time I solidly knew what I wanted to be for a career. And apart from that, like I just, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know like, and also when something I try and tell any young person I speak to is don't put yourself in a bubble right now because you will be shocked at how many jobs exist in the world that you don't know about. Yeah. And even more than that, how many jobs you can just make up. <laughs> right. So don't, don't box yourself in. So in my 20s, I was really struggling with that with like, what am I supposed, like, I need to know what I'm doing with my life. I need to know what job I want. And I think I was going out to dinner or something with a really good friend of mine, Ann Patterson, who's also like a, a really like just a boss ass bitch and like one of my mentors. And she <laughs> she said to me, okay, instead of trying to figure out like your career, what do you want in your life? Like picture your life. And she's like, what do you want? And, she, and I, could, I still was stuck. And she's like, okay, where do you want to live? And I was like, this was, God, I was maybe like 23 at the time. And I was like, well, you know, like I want to live in an apartment, like a really nice apartment. And like, maybe the rent is like 1800. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember stopping, like we were walking down Spark Street. And I remember her stopping and being like, what? what? <laughs> like, That's your big dream, renting for $1,800 a month. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like very fancy and expensive. I mean, bear in mind this time my rent was like $800. I was living in a basement that smelled like feet. This is like big dreaming for me. <laughs> but at the same time, like it got me thinking, you know, whether or not my dreams are very humble. Like there might be a different way of thinking about my life more so. And I didn't, again, I didn't have this language, but this idea that like we need to know what we want to do with our life career-wise is really built around the idea of capitalism and the idea of like the value of your life and your time in this world is really measured by how much you have produced. Right. And if you just step away from that a little bit and think like, well, who do I want to be? And what do I want my day-to-day life to look like? That that really shifts things a little bit because even if career is a big part of your life, it doesn't necessarily need to be a central part of your life. And so I, I did what I called at the time a life inventory. And it basically, because it was focused on career, not just like my life, I had a couple of sections. So the first thing I wrote down was like, issues to dedicate my time, money, and labor. And so these were the things that I believed in. And I'm looking at it right now. And it was five things that I had written. Indigenous women, anti-racism, immigration rights, reproductive health, women's rights in Kenya. And then I said non-monetary career goals. And I had like my not like nothing to do with what I would make. Mm. And then like non and the organization I was with at the time work steps. Um, So like the things I wanted to do that had nothing to do with like the job I was in. And then I tried to take an inventory a little bit. So like, that's what I want for my life. And it was predicated on not necessarily like where I want to live because I already had an idea. Like I wanted to be, to live in a comfortable place and, and really push me to get specific. Like, what did I want? How many bedrooms? Like what, and like, I thought about that. Mm. And then I thought, okay, well, what would it take for me to get there? Like how much, in terms of a number, what do I need to be making to have my life? So it's not like I'm completely removing myself from the necessity of like, I need to make money to be a human being in this world that we live in, but more like, instead of how can I, 
how can I center my life around the money I need to earn? How can the money I earn give me the life I want? And so that really shifted things a bit. You know, I had really thought through like what I want my life to look like, what that number would need to be a month. And then I continued my life inventory and I figured, what are the skills I have? What are the skills I want? And then what do I have in general? So I had like positive trajectory, life experience, family relationships, all that. And then what do I want? From that, I started seeing like, where are the gaps that I need to like scale Mm -hmm. up? Where are the things that, you know, right now, just thinking about it, there might be room to grow. What can I leverage? And it really just became like, I almost like project managed my life uh, for the first time, where it was more about like, okay, where do I want to get to? And then how do I work backwards from that? And part of that working backwards is financial security but it's also a lot of other things it's building relationships it's you know rest it's all I mean rest I hadn't gotten quite to rest yet rest is a battle (laughs) that I'm still fighting you know it's all of these things that that I had down on paper that I still look at and it's so interesting because now I look at this so many years later and I'm like yeah okay I did that and I'm, I'm comfortable now I should technically do this again And it's really interesting that I even did this because my mom is a big reader of self-help books. And so I have this like deep hatred for anything that even like sniffs of self-help. Like you tell me like, oh, I read this great. I remember there was a year where like the seven habits of like a success. Highly effective people or something. And like anytime someone brought that up, I literally would gag because I'm like, I hate it. (laughs) And I remember yelling one time when my mom would recommend books. I'm like, you know, why don't you just live your life instead of reading a book to tell you how to live your life? And like, yeah. <laughs> it's like I was drinking that haterade like gulping it down and, again, and like yeah. I still you're still not gonna catch me with a self-help book but I think I have a little bit more respect for a the field has changed a little bit more and it's really valuable to some people and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna yuck anyone's yum right <laughs> but it's never like this whole idea of like planning and and what do you what do people call it like vision boarding has never been for me but I genuinely think in looking back it was a matter of privilege like, I to don't think, think about these things to even yeah. think about these things to even have it has almost been a privilege to have the audacity to plan your life because it's like, oh, you think you have any control over your life. You don't, girl, like just sit down, shut up and take what you can get. Um, and also it is it is a privilege in that, like just the time to sit down and say, OK, what do I want? What do I have? Like that is such a like for me, I will tell you, I think I mentioned this to you before. I don't know why maybe I'll, I'll dig into this with my therapist one day, but like, I genuinely had the, I had the feeling that I was going to die when I was 27. Yeah. I remember yeah. you telling me this. Yeah. Like, if I, was going, so I was like, what the hell am I doing all this planning for? Let me just like live my best life, live it up, get it done, wrap it up. 27 go. So like, I even had like a small breakdown when I was turning 27. Cause I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do now? Like I didn't plan this far ahead. But I think this was important, not in this, like, I'm envisioning my life, but literally just, like, planning it out in, in this, practical really, way. this really yeah. practical way. And it's, again, the same thing I started doing for my work and just being really practical. Like, what do I need? What do I have? What do I know? How do I get there? Done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we're actually in the same, in the same boat because I, I remember my first, I hated reading as a kid. Absolutely hated it. <laughs> And my, my dad would, like, guilt me into reading. He'd be oh, like, so oh, funny. look at your cousins. <laughs> oh, that the read, African like, the, way. Jeez, <laughs> let me tell you. And yeah. then at one point, I actually got into reading, and then he got annoyed because I just loved reading so <laughs> All you much. do is read. Yeah. Literally. But it started with fiction, and then I slowly made my way into, like, self-help. And then 
but there, there comes a point where you like watching all the videos, you're reading all the books, and there's mm -hmm. still like you haven't applied anything. So truly yeah. what you the comment that you made is is very much on point. But like just from a pragmatic point of view, I love how specific you got and how Anne was like asking you to write down like how many bedrooms, like what does it eighteen hundred dollar and like just being like fully transparent like this is I just moved into this place in January I'm paying $1,800 this is the most money I've ever spent on a roof over my head <laughs> isn't it crazy how everything you wrote down happened that literally <laughs> blows my mind yeah I mean I will no no shade but one of the things I wrote is a better relationship with my brother and that has never everything we're getting there we're getting there <laughs> yeah this is um this is really fascinating i've done like a, a similar exercise it's slightly different but the way that it i think part of it too is just understanding what it is that you want but if you're not clear on what it is then you're just kind of like walking and moving through the world aimlessly mm -hmm. but that's part of what's scary too is getting really specific because then you're like oh shit now i actually have to make yeah. this happen if, um, I, if I don't do it then I've technically failed but that that being said I do think that something that has always served me is that I I did something like this and then I closed it I didn't look at it once mm -hmm. a year I didn't revisit it but I always kind of had this I have two things that I've always lived by and Nathan my partner knows this because I say every time we have to make a decision the first one is I'm never going backwards I'm only going forward Mm -hmm. And there are times when that has served me really well. For instance, even just talking about this apartment, we lived in the apartment we were in for, God, like five years. And I, I liked the apartment, but there were things that I didn't like about it. But I just refused to move somewhere that felt like I was going backwards. Um, and also like when I was when I was really struggling after university and I refused to take any job that paid me minimum wage. And at that time it was like $9 because that's what I had been making before. I was like, no, even if it's $9 and one cent, I am holding out for that one cent. Like I need to move forward. And the other thing has always been say yes to everything. See what you hate, see what you like. Like mm -hmm. that had been, that had been a driving, that has been a driving force in my life for a really long time. Just the, like, I've always been, I've always been so certain that there are very few mistakes or very few things in your life that cannot be undone. I mean, right. like, okay, I was going to say pregnancy, well, but technically that can't be undone. <laughs> I, I knew you were yeah. going to make a comment like that because you're just ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, most <laughs> things are reversible. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, say yes to everything, you know, see what fits, see what doesn't, and then keep, keep it moving. Hmm. I have one question about this exercise. Give it to me. Hey there. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the conversation, make sure to share it with a friend. Take a screenshot, spread the word. It really allows me to bring on more incredible guests as we continue to level up in the podcasting space. Do you feel like right now, you mentioned that you kind of struggled with dreaming big mm -hmm. um, and thinking certain things were kind of possible in your life. I'm wondering where you at right now, like with all of the, even in this past year, Sharon, your team is growing, your, your company is growing. All of these in, incredible things are happening around you and you've, you've brought together such incredible people, right? Yeah. You're, and you're working with clients that you want to work with and all these things. So I'm wondering, where do you feel like you're at right now? Yeah, that's a good question. And a, and a tough one, because I think I often have moments in my days and my weeks where I'm like, 
god damn like is this a real thing that is happening right now like I'll even say it when we just having dinner I'll be like is it so weird that I have a company like is it like super duper weird <laughs> like there's just these moments of bewilderment but also that being said there and I don't I don't want to be a downer here but I think like most things human beings we can only really envision what we have what we have examples of we can only really envision what we have closely seen and can replicate and you know maybe I'm wrong I'm not a I'm not a psychologist but at least that's been what's true for my life is that for instance okay for instance that question Anne asked me about where I want to live and the first thing I thought was an apartment that I rented for $1,800 and you know what like I'm, I'm not gonna flex like that is that is a big dream for a lot of people that was a big dream yeah. for me but that's the thing it's a big dream relative to what I have had access to like I think our right. dreams are only relative to what we think is possible and what we think is possible is really informed by what we have seen in close in close contact it's the same way if like you know if you have been if you have had let's say parents who have had a certain kind of relationship for a long time if you were a child you will think that is the that is the most possible way to have a relationship and it's the same with with career with money with big dreams like I've known from a theoretical standpoint what is possible like you see the I don't know the villain billionaires of the world and you're like well technically I can't I that is possible because they are doing it so like if we're being fully technical that is possible but in my immediate life that is not what I have seen in my immediate life. A lot of the people around me that I have been closest to in terms of family and friends have struggled. And in, in my little small community of family and friends, we have celebrated the small wins because we never knew if the big ones were truly really possible, right? My version of dreaming big is going to be super different than someone else's version of dreaming big, right? Like I remember seeing, um, uh, Avery Francis, the CEO of, of Bloom. I, God, it must have been last year. She was on um, Arlen's podcast, like my first million. Oh, Arlen Hamilton, yeah. Yeah, and I remember, I remember immediately seeing that and feeling like low-key salty about it, and I, don't, I didn't know why. Thankfully, I have, you know, done a lot of work on myself, and I work with a professional, so that when things like that come up, I, like, take the time to be like, okay, well, what's the issue here? Like, are you actually salty because this, this lady's, like, getting hers? And I was like, okay, well, no, not, I have literally no problem with that. Um, it was mostly just, like, in, in my line of vision, I had never imagined a moment where Quake Lab could have a million dollars in revenue. Like, that, that was not, some, like, even just recently, like, we had a conversation about generational, finan generational wealth and financial literacy, and I told you that I had never for a moment even thought that I could retire from Quake Lab yeah. because that would require there being like this residual income that I'd like I'd never imagined a world where I would not my retirement plan wasn't to work till I died and like that that's the thing it's not that I don't have big dreams for Quake Lab it's not that I have this dream of like you know like some of it is coming to fruition like having a really strong team and you know doing really cool work and documenting it and talking about it. like those were the when we talk about big dreams like yeah. that that is what big looks like to me and has looked like to me but now I think I'm at a point where I kind of need to stretch that a little bit and as anyone who is lingering on the 30 over 30 knows stretching hurts <laughs> stretching hurts but it's good for you and so like I need to stretch that muscle a little bit more so I can see like 
what is possible for my feet to fit in in terms of dreaming big and and also just like building that imagery for myself because it's not something that I have direct knowledge of that's where I'm at that's I'm at a point where I'm just literally trying to stretch I don't I don't I'm not on a schedule I don't really know what that looks like like even now if we're being fully honest I don't even imagine I can't even picture what it means to have a million dollars in revenue (laughs) and that like just now I will say again I'm probably being hot like way too candid but a few months ago we hit a hundred thousand dollars like just in our account and that to me was like, well, like I joked to Nathan that I'm going to like shut down the business and run off with this money because I made it. Like Until you realize that can get you like a bedroom in Ottawa. <laughs> it's not even a house, right? It can get you a shack behind a house. Um, but, you know, like I, I'm stretching. I'm stretching that feeling of what it means to dream big. That's where I'm at. You brought up so many important things. And thank you for being <laughs> honest about the whole dreaming big is relative to like what you've seen there. And you're probably, cause you probably took like a bunch of courses in this, but there's something called relative deprivation theory. And they, <laughs> they talk about, it's so fascinating, but they talk about as people, we don't, mm. we don't mm. self-assess based on our standing, like in the world. Yes. We are so privileged and so well off when you look at the entire globe, yep. but we, we, we self-assess based on our immediate circle. Right. And, and we see those people in the same circle as ourselves. And so mm. they, they had this really interesting study where they talked about, for example, like suicide rates, like which are the countries that have the highest suicide rate? Are they happy countries or are they unhappy hmm. countries? And they found that they're actually the happiest countries. And so they, they hmm. use like relative deprivation theory to describe that when you are an individual who is maybe depressed or unhappy and in a sea of people who are happy, that kind of um, influences how you see yourself. And so Hmm. um, I thought that was an interesting way that you described it in terms of like dreaming big. Um, That's so interesting. You talked about Quake Lab. You talked about some of those really cool milestones that have happened recently. I would really love for you to talk about how you came up with the service offering because when, when I introduced you and Sabrina last year, you yes. are like the only two people in Canada who are like doing this work this way. Yeah. And I was immediately drawn to it. So I'm wondering how you fuse design thinking with equity. Like, how did you get yeah. there? I mean, I always joke that like, I don't know if I should say this out loud as often, I do, as, often as I do, but like this business is built on blood sweat and rage <laughs> but mostly rage and it's rage at like the ways in which at a at organizational level and I want to separate organizational level or let's say like professional world with like activism and you know grassroots level because that is very different this is a world where activists and grassroots are like decades ahead of us you know just imagine the ways in which like abolitionism has become this mainstream word now, but like there are activists who've been talking about it since like the 80s. So like we are far behind. So specifically in the professional and organizational corporate world, we have done such a bad job at equity. And that 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 is the rage that fueled this. It was being a immigrant, a black woman, a young person, a person who at the time, like, I wouldn't even know how to describe this, but now I do with, you know, some level of disability, being in the corporate space and just seeing the ways in which 
the same rigor that was put to problem solving in a corporate yeah. space was never put to equity. But the language that was used, the narrative around like, this is a problem that we should all, you know, make time for. This is pressing. This is important. And I think just because of who I am, my first step when I hear anything new is I, I don't want to talk about it until I do my best to learn about it. So I did some, I did some digging around um, into like what we know as like the DEI space. And particularly that really narrows into sort of two things, which is assessments and training. That's what I had found more of. And so I dug into those two areas and found that, A, this is a really unregulated space in a lot of ways. Like there there are no like standards of work. Mm. There are no standards of practice. Um, and B, it is a space that like isn't well documented and researched, um, which serves for two things. A, it means that since goodness, I want to say the 70s, when we started seeing like unconscious bias training and anti-racism training, since then, we don't have a ton of research around like, is this working? And the research we have is like, no, <laughs> like we have continued to do it, <laughs> um, which is like bewildering to me. Because if, if, if this was any other industry, there would be like an uprising of some sort. Um, and so that was what I was learning a lot of. And then I started being pushed towards this area of like, not only is it not working, but it might actually be detrimental in a lot of different ways. There's a study I always I always refer back to the affirmative action and, and DEI work in the workplace. The biggest winner of that has been white women. And so again, like this led me down this really deep rabbit hole of like what is happening in the space? Why is it that we don't approach it with the same rigor? Why aren't we working the same way? And then more and more I realize that one of the the big things in this space is that no one defines what the problem is. We say there is a problem. We say diversity is a problem. So it's almost like diversity, equity, and inclusion are the problem that we are trying to solve. But no one goes into it within, again, within the corporate space, no one goes into the effort of saying, okay, what exactly are we saying is the problem? And then if anyone goes to that level, usually the problem is like, there is not enough black people, brown people, whatever people here. It's like, what we look like is the problem. And so that becomes the solve. And even then, the solve isn't great. And that that was somewhere where I was like, okay, this is something I feel I can put my hands on. This is something I can sink my teeth into. Because if there's one thing I know from using design thinking, there is a focus on you need to get really intimately familiar with your challenge before you try to build a solution, before you try and take any kind of action. I was like, you know what? This feels like my wheelhouse getting to know the channel challenge. What do you do to do that? And so kind of off the side of my desk as I was, you know, doing a lot of consulting, freelancing was building that process. And it, you know, it wasn't perfect, especially because it was just me. It was me doing a lot of learning, testing, doing a lot of free work, doing a lot of badly paid work, but just in service of like testing this out, testing to see if this theory could actually work. And I'll be fully honest, I've come I've come to terms with the fact that, that there's no version of this work that can like 100% work because there's still a human element to it. The efficacy of this process is also informed by other things that we cannot control. But that's, that's where that work started. And it feels really, um, I don't know if in my lifetime I'll ever feel comfortable saying this out loud because there's something so perverse about the fact that people like me and the work that we do saw like a huge boom in demand 
because of the death of the deaths of people that looked like us because yeah. we were mourning so loudly because people like I don't know because people woke up and discovered racism like and I again I will never feel comfortable with that because it feels so like I, I don't even know the words for it um I have a friend who consistently reminds me your work wasn't born out of this, but you had been doing this work and it just became mm-hmm. more mainstream, more relevant, even you could say. So that's something that, you know, <laughs> lets me have some sleep at night. But yeah, and so that was that was a moment in which I started being, I started having the opportunity to test this on a much wider scale than I had before and charge for it in a way that makes sense. Because part of also something that changed in 2020 was the way people would think about resourcing this work. There was a time when, and now, I mean, you know this process because you've gone through it, where we go through weeks and weeks of deeply assessing an organization, of doing secondary research, of collecting primary research. And there was a time when I charged like a thousand dollars for that, months of work. I would charge, and just just me alone. I charged a thousand dollars that because the moment, even that, I would I was having to nickel and dime it because people were like, mm, that's too much work. Like, <laughs> you know, and I don't know why, I don't know why I'm the architect of my own like pain because I come, I came from an, a, a field communications that's always so under resourced to another field that's always so under, I don't know. I don't know why I just, I, I love feeling myself weep every day um but 2020 shifted that because a lot of really incredible women of color specifically a lot of trans folks came up and were like no like you this is this is a skill it's it's labor and you need to pay us for that labor and that was one of the reasons why i have made some really intentional choices about how I build the method and how I build the organization in general. And so that comes down to two things. The first is that it's really emphasizing what we do is a skill. Actually, it is a number of skills. What people are paying for, what clients are paying for is in our identity or our trauma because of our identity, but our skill. Um, because often that's that's another thing, you know, you have organizations come to us and say, like, we wanted to do this work and we wanted to do it with people who have lived experience. And I always prickle at that a little bit. I never say anything, but I prickle at that a little bit because it's this idea of like your value add to us is the fact that you are black. Right. And I'm like, I don't know what that means <laughs> like like and you know like we've talked about this in the past my, like even when people talk about the necessity for difficult conversations it dawned on me recently that when people say that they're not talking about difficult conversations of like oh by the way the way you set up your benefits plans is incredibly transphobic it's more like yeah the the, the hard conversations people talk about is like consuming your trauma that's what they mean by hard conversations like they want to hear the time you were walking down the street and someone called you a nigger and they want to cry about it and that's what they mean by hard conversations and so shifting things so that our identity especially because as like we are now an organization that is powered by non-binary and women who like experience marginalization so many different ways it would be so i think it would be unethical for me to put that as the center of like what you are paying for, you know? And I think that that's part of why, for instance, in the branding of the organization, there's nowhere where it says like 
black women run, which, and it's something that I'm very proud of. This is a black woman owned organization. Don't get me wrong, but I also don't want that to be the value add because what we are coming to the table with is incredible skill, incredible insight, incredible rigor in the work that we do. And then the other thing, which is sort of related is we are never going to insert our lived experience or identity as part of your learning, unless as an individual, you choose to include that in part of your learning. There'll be times when I'm in conversation with a client where I might say, well, like, you know, personally, when I was going through the immigration process, and personally as a black woman, like I wouldn't particularly care for this, but it's not something that is a given. And it's not something that I'm ever going to build into a process or ever going to ask of my team because that's yucky. <laughs> like I never want people to feel like their trauma is necessary for people's learning. I struggle with this because we all have heard of all of the research and all of the discourse around this idea that like storytelling is so powerful and that people learn through stories. And I, I don't disagree, but I think we need to be clear here. There's storytelling and then there's the really shitty things that have happened to me. That's not a story, right? Like I would never call the time you know, someone got into a tragic accident, their story. That's them getting into a tragic accident. I've never asked them to peddle that for, yeah. you know, so that they can be humanized more. And so this idea that like, I need to story tell the bad things that have happened to me so that you can see me as a human being. I, like for me, that draws the line where if that is something that's necessary for you, maybe maybe we don't need to work together. And that's also why we don't do unconscious bias training, anti-racism training. A, again, from the research, doesn't work. And B, what usually ends up happening is you have this moment where, especially when you're in a relatively homogenous group, where people start to look at the, the black lady in the room, at the Muslim lady in the room, at the trans man in the room to be like, you know, what happened to you? Like, is it actually that bad? Like, tell us your really terrible things. And that's not fun. It's not fun. Like, a lot of people who work in organizations, they didn't sign up to be the resident, I don't know, like, Negro whisperer. Like, that's not what we signed up for. We signed up to do your, like, accounting. Like, right? Like, this is right. not our wheelhouse. And again, experience is expertise but like we are not selling our experience we're selling our skill right. and that needs to be like a line that is drawn in the sand for me I, I highly respect people who do work where they involve their lived experience I highly respect it I think it's incredible and courageous but you know what it's not my ministry it's not for me I barely I barely talk about my emotions with the people who are closest to my life I'm not going to do it with a room full of strangers <laughs> well Thanks for your honesty. I think it really ties, um, before we wrap up the episode, it really ties to um, something that you've said in the past around, and maybe we were slowly like speaking ourselves out of a job, but this <laughs> idea that this work needs to live within a specific function, which is most commonly in like HR or even like having mm -hmm. a diversity and an inclusion department. Mm -hmm. And you're of the belief that actually this has to be a part of every function. Everything. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm really sorry. I feel like I haven't actually talked about the, the nuts and bolts of the work. One of the things that we do uh, in the beginning of a process is we start with the assessment, right? And the assessment reviews every aspect of the organization. It's usually a pretty tough moment for a client because for instance, one of the things they'll see is like finance. And they think like, oh my gosh, you're going to need to see our numbers. But we look at their finance, the finance or accounting department, their comms, their projects and programs, their HR, all of that. And the reason is that 
equity or inequity doesn't care about our departmental boundaries. A, it doesn't care. It's not like, oh, this is comms. I'm just going to stop my racism right here, right? Like, it's like we live in a society that is built on inequity, that is built on discrimination. So like, yes, this is how our organizations are also built. This is the foundation. This is all poisoned fruit from poisoned trade. And so that's where that level of thinking begins. The idea that like inequity doesn't respect our are, you know, socially designed boundaries. But also when we talk about, I think I lean more towards, and I don't know, maybe I'm, this is not good for me to say in terms of the work that I do, but you hear a lot of DEI, EDI, equity, inclusion, belonging. And I, I truly think that's a lot of semantics. Like it's an important conversation, but I don't, tr- I try not to get caught up in it. The area where I do try and land is justice and equity, because that talks about structures and not feelings which there's nothing wrong with feelings but not feelings not individual experiences but systemic patterns and how to dismantle them and so i try and lean in that equity justice space and part of that space is understanding that the ways in which we dismantle and redesign for equity and for justice is that we need to get to like the nitty gritty. So for instance, this is a space where the focus is often on HR, specifically recruitment, whereas I think that's important. But I also think we need to look at, for instance, accounting. Let's be cognizant of the fact that like, and you know, you've heard me say this before, like one of the 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 biggest groups coming into the job market and in the job market right now are millennials. Millennials are also one of the most historically in debt people in history. So by thinking about that human centered, that equity and justice, and then don't, and that's talking about millennials without any intersections. We're not talking about black. We're not talking about millennials in poverty. We're not talking about immigrant. We're just talking about millennials as a whole. So if you bear that in mind and bear in mind, like some of the systems and processes within an accounting department that inherently become harmful to them. And it's simple things. It could be as an organization, when you um, have people go out and do things, do you expect them to pay first? And then they get reimbursed at some point after doing a bunch of paperwork. So are you making the assumption that everyone has access to that money? Are you making the assumption that everyone has access to a credit card, that they have the generational wealth to be able to have the credit to get a credit card, things like that. From an accounting space, do you come into considerations with to the fact that like a lot of racialized folks, a lot of indigenous folks, in the job market, even if you feel that they're making a good wage, like, you know, 80, 70, whatever thousand dollars a year, do you take into consideration that a lot, into consideration that a lot of them are supporting a team behind them, a family, friends, community behind them, and that their dollar isn't being used in the same way as like a single white man who has parents who are comfortably retired, right? And like, are you considering that? And then going past consideration, like, well, what are you doing about it? And I know this some often sounds really radical because, you know, people will say, well, it's not an organization's job to do this. It's not an organization's job to do that. But I think we need to get really comfortable with the fact that employment and the model of employment or like labor for cost is also inherently inequitable because let, I'll give you an example. Me as a, as a business owner, like I just said, so like a few months ago, we hit that $100,000 in our account. Which one of my team has hit $100,000 in their account from working with me? Let me tell you, no one, me included, me as an individual. The model of employment is not balanced in that 
I as an employee or I as a, as a person who is paying for people's labor will always have more than they have. And so like, if I'm coming into that space, with that knowledge, it's not meant to make me feel guilty or say that I shouldn't make money. It's made to make me understand that like, by that virtue, I have a responsibility to be absolutely knowledgeable about that power dynamic, absolutely knowledgeable about the ways in which it is, it is um, weaponized to further inequities, and then start thinking about what are the ways in which I as a business owner, as an individual can move towards justice, right? And that's, that's what that looks like. That's why you can't just say the important thing is recruitment. No, we're getting radical. Forget, forget doing the bare minimum. It's 2021. Like, get it together. And there, was that there. Just a, End the rant. <laughs> was that just a call to action? <laughs> <laughs> that is your call to action. Get it together. Like, the bare minimum is no longer, no, yeah. we're raising the bare minimum. The bare minimum is justice at this point. Forget inclusion. I mean, be inclusive, be all those things. But like, Inclusion, belonging, diversity isn't your goal now. Your goal now is justice. Because they're, you know, I, I always tell some clients, some clients, most of the people who tell me this don't end up working with me, but they come to me and they're like, you know, we like your process. We really want to get, you know, we want to do this right. They always say we want to do this right. But, you know, we feel like some members of our team are in different places. Like, you know, they, they don't know what this means and they don't have the language. And I'm always like, listen, Jan, I get it, you know, Bob doesn't know what transgender means. And I get it, he needs to learn. And it's important that you give him the resources to teach him. But you know what? Jane, who is transgender, has been dealing with violence for her entire life. So if it's okay, I'm gonna prioritize Jane, trying to make this space as equitable as possible. And Bob can figure his shit out later. Cause like, that's not who I'm prioritizing now, if it's okay with everyone. So move towards justice. Nothing else is nothing else is acceptable at this point. And see. Thank you. Thank you for spending this time with all of us. It's I'm happy that we did this today. Um, mm. because I think it also took being in your ecosystem to understand how critical this work is. And you. you reminded that yes, we are in 2021 we are shaking things up. Can you tell people literally why <laughs> your organization is called Quake Lab? Because we're shaking Naomi, things up. No, to be specific, like you'll never see this in Brandy, but it's shaking shit up. <laughs> like an earthquake. <laughs> that is what we're doing. We're shaking shit up. And you know what? While we're at it, creating new lands, new fertile islands through our, our shaking. So I'm okay with that. <laughs> thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the power of why. I hope it's, it wasn't too self-healthy for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'll tell you about, let's, let's vision board next. I want to tell you about let's how, do that. Um, you know, if you just believe, believe in yourself. No, <laughs> thank, thank you for having me. I love, love, love the work that you do here on power of why. And also with us, you are, yeah a force to be reckoned with, an absolute force to be reckoned with. And I love that you're making room for the likes of me and everyone else to convene in this space to talk to, you know, just, you know, we don't often get to like think about our lives in the way you do when you're presenting it to an audience and it's important and it serves me, it serves all of us. And I hope there's just something in the last hour that is useful to at least just one person. And if not, you know what, that's okay. 
I've been watching a lot of Two Bird Girls. It's a terrible show. It's absolutely <laughs> problematic. It has served zero value in my life, but here we are. So if I'm your Two Broke Girls this week, I also accept that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shane. Thanks for Thank being you. here. What is the best place for people to connect with you online? Mm, Twitter. 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 I am a millennial with a lot of useless things to say. So Twitter is where I can say them. <laughs> and then Thank you, can... you so much. Yeah, no problem. You're so welcome. And um, if you're interested in learning more about Quake Lab, which after this interview, I don't know how you can't be, um, you can <laughs> visit um, at quakelab.ca and we'll have all the links to where you can connect with Sharon on Twitter, connect with the work that she's doing at Quake Lab in the show notes. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye. Ooh, thank you. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a review on iTunes with a brief note about your thoughts of the show. We publish new episodes of the podcast every single week. Until then, thank you so much for listening.